Let's cut to the chase. The world of work is changing. There is no stopping that change. Welcome to the Better Work Project, brought to you by the team at Softend. I am your host, David Mantica, and joining me as co-host is Andy Cooper. In this podcast, we will explore the changing world of work, what the future of work means, how it affects businesses and workers alike, and how we can create more productive and engaged workplaces. I hope you join us for the ride. Enjoy. Welcome to episode four of the Better Work Project podcast. We're excited to have part two of the adaptive leadership session. And this part two is going to be much more pragmatic. We're going to be talking about the death of old school leadership techniques and explain how adaptive leadership techniques basically take over for those old school techniques. We have Andy Cooper with us from New Zealand, and we have internationally recognized thought leader on adaptive leadership, Pat Reed, back with us for this part two, and we're excited to have them. So the practical side, basically the old school ways of leading is, is going extinct because any leader using these skills will continue to drive their company to obsolescence. What we will do is kind of throw out an old school way of leading and discuss why it is dying and how you can utilize adaptive leadership techniques to take over for it to kind of excel during this time or any time of turbulence, disruption, and VUCA. So the old school way, number one. Old school way, number one. I'll do my old school voice. Yearly budget planning. Pulling lots of time and resources for planning and strict adherence to the set budgets as a means of gauging success. So Pat, since you're our guest, why don't you start off with what are your thoughts about this as an old school technique and then how is adaptive changing this mindset? Uh, thank you, David. It, it worked well in the early 1900s uh, when it emerged out of the industrial kind of revolution, but those days were far more predictable. So there's a prerequisite for that to work, and that is that the known knowns are predominant and you don't have any unknown unknowns so that you can invest in planfulness and predictability and then you can use your strategic levers to manage to get those results but that's been well over a hundred years ago and in the world that we're living in today the unknown unknowns are uh, are basically uh, happening to us every day imagine if we were designing a budget uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, no one could have possibly predicted the world, the state of the world as we, as we know it today. So that's a classic example of an unknown unknown. And so instead we need to let go of those very old school techniques that, that not only no longer serve us, but actually hold us back and understand that we need to let, to, as we let go of those, we need to replace them with far more um, adaptive techniques to uh, meet the changing needs of our customers who are trying to deal with those unknown unknowns. You know, it's funny when you say that, Pat, because I'm just talking about that. The one thing that goes through my mind is all the wasted time and energy that companies spent planning their budgets in, in December or November 2019 and to see what's happened because of that. It's kind of scary to think about that. 
it's scary and it's also disorienting because out there they're very reluctant some even today reluctant to let those go because they know they're no longer helping them but they're comfortable because they put that much time and energy into it which is one of the double you know double hazards of actually maintaining that old school habit sometimes even when we know those are no longer the priorities different organizations who have been so acculturated and and have formed such a deep habit of being measured against those actual parameters are reluctant to let them go where they're reluctant to adapt because you know they they're uh, disoriented and they're uncomfortable stepping into that adaptive need so andy your thoughts on Topic, your thoughts on the planning cycles. And I have a follow-up question for both of you after that. It's interesting because, I mean, I've read quite a bit about this and I've also experienced it. I've worked for a number of organizations and experienced the, the joy and the pain of um, long budgeting cycles. Um, and, um, and then we're, we're, we're afflicted with the outcomes of that. Um, where we were tried to sort of held accountable for, for guesses that were made almost a year before um, and if we did, it was pure luck. Um, but I think that's an interesting um, point. I, I heard a stat which um, apparently Ford um, some years ago was, a, they, they guessed that, well, they anticipated that it actually spent like $1.2 billion on their annual um, budgeting cycle. So you could, you know, um, which is actually the GDP of, of a number of small countries. So if you just think about how much, you know, one company, one large company, and you think about the waste that they've incurred, you multiply that around the world, you can see there's a huge amount of, um, of, of waste. Um, and it, it, to me, it does come back to this, you know, Pat talked about this um, known knowns and, um, and the reality is that we, we've got a very limited um, way of seeing into the future. And this example of recently has really highlighted that. So, um, the whole, you know, the time spent on it um, is very, uh, you know, wasteful in a way. Um, but I think that's largely because people don't know how to do it any different. You know, what's exciting to me is to see that um, organizations like IC Agile has jumped into the whole Agile world with Agile finance. And, and that's a really interesting way for people to start at least learning the practices. But what we're talking about here is the, the mindset shift. So, what Pat, you said kind of scared me in the fact that you know of companies that even when this has occurred, COVID-19 and a disruption to their budget cycle, just keep reporting on that budget and don't even try to change or adapt to the current situation. Yeah, that's actually happening far more often than you might expect right now, David, because um, as Andy pointed out, they know it's not the most effective way to lead but they don't know how to let go of it. So I kind of equate it to driving through this crisis, uh, looking at your rear view mirror, not looking forward at the emerging threats and the emerging opportunities. They will guarantee to miss any opportunity to adapt and get fit for uh, the recovery, right? It's, um, it's truly blinding them to the ability to actually adapt and redirect that those billions of dollars that Andy was talking about into discovering 
what the customer's needs are today and re and revamping that right oh my it takes courage it's amazing to think about that i mean andy pointed out those numbers and you really start thinking about it two very pragmatic learnings from this are one if you ever if you ever don't if you ever feel that you shouldn't stop the budgeting cycle think about the waste Mm -hmm. and that money for and then number two have you tried any technique to do a quarterly or an every two month budget review and replan. And that's not just a forecast because most people forecast, which is they're looking at the budget and they're forecasting differences, actually replanning activities based on what they're seeing. And Andy, have you ever, I know I have experienced that and it worked extremely well for me in the past. Have you ever experienced where they actually planned in quarterly or in two month increments? Yeah, um, I mean, we're, our own organization is attempting that. Um, and I think one of the key things that uh, is important when you start moving beyond this budgeting cycle into this new world is to stop conflating three different things, um, you know, which is your forecast, a budget, and targets. Uh, they're all quite different things, and they all should be um, thought of differently, whereas typically the budget cycle tries to conflate the three things together. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, you get a lot of um, game playing and um, games um, that go on between people to try and maximize the, their own personal opportunities. Um, and usually it's because those three, three things are at odd with, with each other. So part of the trick here is to try and separate those out into to what they are. Um, you know, your budget is obviously, you know, what that, that's the operating um, level for your business. Um, you know, then you're going to have a more um, aspirational um, target um, that, is should be based around what's possible um, and benchmark potentially against your regional competitors um, and then a forecast which is what do you actually see happening so those three things are really quite different things that need to be measured and, and tracked differently um, and that's part of the way of shifting away from this uh, annual budgeting process it's funny you should say that the previous company i owned they when they bought us i had to go through that process that used to drive the the VP who connected with us crazy didn't quite understand what I was saying, the difference between the plan, the budget and the plan. And then we had the forecast. So you just couldn't get that middle ground. I've come, well, the plan adjusts. I mean, the budget's there, but that the plan adjusts. And it was so hard for him to wrap that around and see the differences between that and what the rolling forecast was. Um, on this subject, Pat, anything else to add before we jump into the next topic? Yeah, this subject itself is, is a complex adaptive challenge. Which, make, which means it's deeply entangled in the, the organization's strategy. The reason why it's so hard to un, untangle it is because you have to wrap your head first around thinking about your strategy as adaptive. So you need to kind of realize that the strategy has to adapt first. And then what I found to be a highly practical approach to what to do about that, David, is to help organizations develop a strategy map. And when they have that adaptive strategy and have identified their top three targets, you know, for the upcoming, let's say quarter or biannually, then to, to develop an enterprise value model to help everyone get aligned and have a clear line of sight. And those three are key to actually uh, effectively disentangling from the old way of working. It's incredibly hard to change old habits. But when you find and introduce new tools, 
you can pretty much let go of the old habits, realizing that they don't work. And the, one of those new habits is the value-based or evidence-based rolling wave planning and forecasting cycle. Rolling wave. That's phenomenal. I think we have a whole topic for another podcast just with that question alone. So let me put my... Uh, Sorry, one, one, one last point to add. Um, for, for those that aren't aware, there's a whole... Um, whole philosophy called Beyond Budgeting, which talks about this topic. And there's lots of good case studies um, um, and practical examples of how to, to do different types of budgeting. Andy, thanks for sharing that. That was great. I mean, that's the goal. Pragmatic, pragmatic, pragmatic. So I'm going to put my old school voice on again. Old school way number two, directing all the activities of your direct reports and ensuring that they are doing the things they have been told to do and with active KBI measurements. So I'm gonna start with Pat again because this has kind of been a good back and forth. Pat, thoughts on that one? Uh, you get it, it worked in the early 1900s, but it would be disaster today because what we know from dealing with extremely complex and dynamic challenges is that you need that cognitive diversity. And the people who are on the front lines know a great deal more than the CEO about how to deliver something. So the role of leadership changes to understand that the role of the leader or the value proposition of the executive is to give real clarity around why your direction for the next quarter needs to hit particular targets, but never tap into the how. So a leader today must never actually tell people how to do something. Uh, they need to tell them why, and they need to tell them what a successful outcome looks like. But people need autonomy. They need a sense of finding their own way, um, leveraging their own knowledge about what's going to work best. Uh, and they need a sense of that clarity of purpose, which is what the, the leader's role is. They also need to develop their own mastery in solving complex problems to build their confidence. So the worst thing a leader could do is that particular old school pattern of holding people accountable to doing exactly what you tell them to do. It's suicide. Interesting. I do have some follow-up questions on that, but I wanna to get to Andy. So Andy, your thoughts, any additional comments that Pat had or you wanna jump into another direction on this, on this topic? Um, just really just to add to it, I think this sort of stems from, you know, a lot of a lot of the management concepts that we're talking about have come from, you know, management thinking of 100 years ago, that's specifically around the Taylorist principle of, you know, separating um, the managers from the workers. Um, and so that type of thinking really permeated when, you know, when we had people doing very simple tasks. Um, but obviously, that's you know, for a lot of people we're talking with on this webcast, that's far from what they do. So that type of thinking, um, you know, needs to be put put to put to pasture and um, you know and adapt itself to to the current reality where where um, leaders don't um, and can't direct what their people are doing. Um, their primary goal is to provide the right. Um, climate and also um, help ensure that the purpose of the team and the individuals is clear and understood. So Pat, you mentioned that it could be, you know, suicide for an organization to do this. So now give me some more thoughts on that. One of the first things I start thinking of, Gavin, again, is waste. Like 
the more you tell somebody what to do, you're wasting their potential, their ability to adjust. And the more you're throwing back on your back with already a ton of time that you have to do just to do the other things. So you're not even looking forward. So kind of elaborate on that. Why? I mean, you were very passionate about that and this, on this old way. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's such a, an important topic that I'd be delighted to kind of unpack it a bit. It is also, it comp, it compromises your, uh, people feeling empowered, right? So we all know as adaptive leaders in today's world, you need to empower the frontline people to think and adapt and respond real time to the emerging risks and the emerging threats that are all around us. And when I say real time, I really mean daily, hourly. Um, If you're dependent, if you've been conditioned as a frontline worker, uh, let's say in an emergency room, if you're dependent on hearing from the the uh, the head of the organization to tell you how to respond, uh, then you're virtually immobilized. You know, you feel that you cannot take the initiative, you cannot learn and adapt. The key here when we're dealing with a dynamic, volatile, complex environment is continuously testing and learning and testing and learning. You can't have that... Um, that harness on that that requires you to stop thinking and wait for the boss, the leader to tell you what to do. You need to feel totally empowered to adapt and learn real time and feed that back up so that the leaders are making better informed directional decisions about strategic moves. But true empowerment requires individuals on to be the leader, to have that, that, Uh, confidence to make rapid life, potentially life-changing decisions in the moment. And to build that confidence, the leader needs to help them to understand what success looks like, but understand that the leader is going to give them air cover uh, and will support them in in their decisions. Andy, you have some experience on this that you talk about a great deal on this whole concept of learned helplessness. So I, I think Pat does a great job of saying how the leader can really, you know, screw and muck things up. What's your, some of your thoughts around how workers have to embrace this and not be stuck, you know, in this idea that if I take responsibility, you know, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that comes back to this, the, the, the concept around psychological safety that, you know, we mentioned briefly last time. Um, and that's predominantly around creating a climate where people feel comfortable with taking risks um, with the view that they're not, they won't be punished, um, providing that, that the actions they've taken are, um, are obviously legal and uh, within your own corporate guidelines. Um, but in a lot of cases, the climate of the team or the organization isn't conducive to that. So people believe that by doing things, they'll be potentially be punished if, if the outcome of that was not um, what we expected. So then people shy away from it. And that's where we get to this learned help, helplessness of, um, you know, people not wanting to, to take any risks. It's easier just to put my head down and um, stay away from that. The ostrich, the ostrich way of working, right? You know, one of the things I used as a technique as a past business owner was the idea of stretch assignments. And, 
you know, allowing empowered, passionate folks who felt like they had the psychological safety to go do something that they no normally wouldn't um, have been allowed to do in maybe other environments. And, and that seemed to be a very good tool to help stretch and get them comfortable with the idea that the culture will allow them to learn and adapt and adjust. And the value to me was significant. The other term I used to always use is I don't really want to know how the sausage was made. And I, Pat, I think you said that so well when you talked about the outcomes and the vision, the, you know, the why we're doing this and then let the sausage be made. And Andy, you said this so well when you said as long as it's legal and it follows the visions and, and, and the ethics of the company, go forth and make it happen. Um, any, Pat, any last thoughts on this old school way from your side? I know it compromises innovation as well. And one of, we know that innovation is key to really thriving in today's world and most importantly tomorrow's. If you, if you create that conditioned helplessness that you and Andy were referring to, it's the worst way to set your organization up to become really differentiating and innovative. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to go the old school way number four. And so, Annie, I'm going to start with you on this one. I'm going to put my old school way. The high performer becomes the leader. The, the best salesperson becomes the VP of sales. You know, the best software developer becomes the, 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 the leader of the software development group. So the best technical professional becomes the leader. So your thoughts on that old school way? Uh, well, I mean, I think this has been talked about for quite many years um, and people have realized that, um, that, you know, the only predictor, predictive um, uh, thing for, for, for our future performance is, is current performance. So um, expecting someone who's, who's very good at one thing to then be, be great at something else is, is leaving it, you know, way, way too much to chance. So the opportunity for, for people, to lead should be uh, there all the time. So we don't put someone into a leadership role without providing them the opportunity to lead, even if that's not in a specific leadership role, through influence, um, through special projects um, and other opportunities. So we can develop people um, and have them proven in leadership skills without um, appointing them. So that's first point. The second point is, you know, people um, should be provided the choice. Some people are, um, want to remain in a great at, uh, at not leading. Um, there shouldn't be that only opportunity for people to, to proceed in an organization is, to be, is through being the leader. So Pat, give me your thoughts on that and some of your reactions to Andy, Andy's initial thoughts on it. Yeah, totally echoing what Andy was saying. People need to have a choice in terms of their career trajectory and they need to be able to grow and you know, craft their own path to mastery in whatever their chosen uh, you know, capabilities are. And oftentimes, if you take a software engineer, if you take a technical expert in whatever their domain is, uh, their, their desire might not be to lead other technical gurus. They're, they're, uh, they might want to really develop their path uh, in deepening and broadening uh, that, that expertise. So um, individuals need to have a choice and they need to have opportunities to stretch, as you brought up in your example, David, and to grow in that role or possibly even grow in new roles where they actually take a step back from their career trajectory 
to explore new uh, capability building. In today's world, all of those options need to be available for people to find their way to real happiness at work. When you think about it, most of us spend more time at work than we spend anywhere else in our lives. And so we need to make that fulfilling. Uh, so we need to at least give people the, the, the uh, potential to design their own path. I started thinking about this in a couple of ways as you both talk. One is it's a compensation problem. I think we've gotten this misguided notion that the only way you can increase your compensation is becoming a manager. And I think that there's a misguided notion because it's been brought into reality. So number one, it'd be interested to see what adaptive organizations are doing around compensation plans. And then the other thing I heard you, Pat, talk about here too is the fact that, you know, an adaptive organization wants to move people around to grow and ebb and adjust. So they're not just doing the same job over and over again. Um, and I think that could be very powerful too. And, you know, the figure I had seen recently is that 60% of new managers are still failing. And a lot of it has to do with this concept. One is that they're using old school leadership techniques and two, they're not taking this lattice. And I just read about this recently, this whole lattice approach to leadership, which is adaptive leadership, which is leadership across and through the entire organization, not just from the top down. But any, any comments about any examples where you've seen some adaptive um, techniques around HR, whether it's compensation or whether it's job changes that, that, that you saw that been, have been powerful, Pat or Andy? Uh, yeah, I'll jump in on this one. Uh, the, this is a particular um, passion for me in terms of really creating an environment. And I, I refer to it as a career mosaic oh. as opposed to the traditional career ladder. Hmm? You know, where individuals have a choice and the first thing that's required working with the HR and the organizational structure is to uh, flatten the organizational, you know, you don't start as a, let's just say software engineer or project manager one and then two and then three and then four and then five, you know, I mean, that's the old career ladder, yep. but you actually um, in fact move away from the whole concept of projects and you move towards value streams or product or journey maps, customer journey maps, with self-organizing teams that give you the opportunity to stretch into different roles and actually pair uh, to learn some new skills. So there's a lot uh, what in most organizations right now that are embracing the, the concept of creating a new org structure. They, uh, they tackle that head on by simply not not just creating a career mosaic, but the career mosaic uh, accompanies the way of working is now in high performing teams that actually support the flow of value throughout the organization around these customer journey maps. There's a lot on the HR side that adaptive leadership is going to be pushing on. That's a, that's a topic for another conversation. And Andy, any last comments on this, uh, this old school way? No, I was just going to add that it's a, that that alone is a big topic in terms of um, the politics, um, people's perception of them, their themselves, and their status and their value. Yeah, uh, make, makes those topics very difficult uh, and challenging. Um, but they are ones that increasingly will need to be tackled as part of this uh, new ways of working. All right, so we're going to do the last one here. So I'm trying to make this a good one, and so we're going to talk about the last old school way. All the new ideas come from the top. 
and everyone falls in line. So we're going to do a new strategy, a new strategy that comes from me and or her, or whatever you are, and you do it, and you better do it. So Pat, start with you on this. What's what's going on with this old school technique? Guaranteed to fail. Um, <laughs> it puts amazing pressure on the executive leadership to to feel as if they need to have all the answers. Uh, in fact, when we talk about adaptive leadership, we often, if you look at some of the early literature on it, it's about leadership without easy answers. Uh, and leaders cannot possibly give direction. And we all know from uh, the failed efforts, most transformations fail because of this particular, uh, well, because of all of these old school beliefs. But um, the organizations need to co-create the uh, the change effort. You can't just get and wait for direction from the top and then try to execute on it. It's, it generally results in disaster uh, because uh, then you don't have the the ability to execute on it. The teams do not are not set up to execute if they're again just waiting for the leader to tell them exactly what they need to do. The leader, there's no human being in the world that can have that uh, prescience, you know, or the big enough crystal ball to be able to predict that. And if they did, they wouldn't be learning through feedback loops, you know, so it's totally impractical. And then Anna, your thoughts on this? I mean, it's certainly an interesting topic. It, it is. In fact, I've just been reading um, the book Team of Teams um, by um, Stanley McChrystal, which um, recounted the, the US um, forces, particularly trying to combat um, a highly adaptive and, and successful um, Al Qaeda in Iraq back in the in the sort of early two thousands, and I think that um, you know one of the key takeaways for me from that book was that no matter how good our technology and our systems are and our the the might of um, of of what we bring to bear, if if we're up against uh, an enemy or you know a force, whether that's COVID or a business or something else that can act more quickly, um, then we're going to ultimately going to lose. So um, I think we can see parallels here that uh, in the current situation where we need to be able to empower people at the coal, coal face or at the front line to make decisions quickly and in the interests of the customer and of the business. And then pivot going forward. I got an interesting question for both of you and we're going to, we'll end it with any summary you have. It wasn't, on our initial um, scripting list, but I, I was successful in running a company. We sold it successfully. It was a great experience for me. And we tried, I tried to be adaptive without quite understanding it. And as we were pivoting and adjusting, I used to get a lot of looks of, um, are we ADD or uh, how come we're not fixed or focused on this? Or um, how come we're not, you know, how come we're not digging deeper into this? And I used to have to try to coach them through it. And, but it was very difficult sometimes being an adaptive leader because people kind of think that you're all over the place or there's not one thing to focus on or there's, there, you know, there, there's, there, it's a gray and people don't like gray. So what are some of your thoughts on that? And how, how do you get people who aren't used to this to start getting comfortable in it? because it can be very uncomfortable for a traditional fixed-minded person. So Pat, any thoughts on that? Yes, that's, a, that's an impediment that we all have in our brains. Our brains are actually hardwired, if you will, 
to resist change and to um, to seek uh, clarity and and oftentimes through conditioning, those people that were looking at you, David, were expecting the leader to tell them what to do and they just wanted they craved yes. their brains were craving that clarity and simplicity so we're hardwired for that behavior and it really helps us to leverage some of the new findings in neuroscience to understand what those triggers are each of us hardwired more so than others what some of those triggers are that are uniquely pushing each of our buttons so that we know to be aware of them and we know then how to own those and actually get ahead of that. But it's perfectly normal. It's interesting. Andy, any thoughts on that? Um, not, well, I think you've, both of you have summarized that pretty well. Um, David, thanks for that sharing. I think um, that's co a common reaction that I think we, we find people do see, seek certainty. Um, and I think to me that, I think we've talked about in the previous uh, podcast to me um, what, what we really need to be th thinking of is clarity uh, and um, not certainty. We can't provide that in a complex, unpredictable world, but clarity is something that a leader can provide. Yes. Um, even if that, the clarity around um, permission to do things, clarity around purpose um, and clarity around, um, you know, also, support and recognition those sort of things pat and mandy i really appreciate your time this has been fantastic um any last comments pat and then i'll leave it to andy and then we'll close out well, thank you very much this has been great thank you and any last comments from you nope just one last um thing to add i would also suggest um looking at the um ted talk on uh, team of teams, the concept that, that I mentioned before, I think that's helpful for people to sort of understand about how information sharing um, and, and um, empowerment is, a, I think, a, a key condition for agility. Excellent. Well, thank you all. We look forward to you on episode five, and we'll surprise you with what that topic's going to be. Till then, enjoy, be safe. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Better Work Project. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you have specific suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Continue to fight the good fight. We'll see you the next time on the Better Work Project. Thank you.